If you have a Bible, can I encourage you to turn to John 20 as we we'll look at this together. I'm doing it so this evening under the title, The Resurrection Blasting Ignorance. The resurrection of Jesus makes all the difference in the world, all the difference to human history, all the difference to human lives. And we're going to focus here this evening on three people and the difference that the resurrection made to them, to Peter and John and to Mary Magdalene. And one thing we're going to particularly focus on is how the resurrection changes people's ignorance. There are two types of ignorance. There's the ignorance where people are just rude. That's not what we're thinking about tonight. We're thinking about the ignorance which comes from a lack of understanding. And we see that people have lives that are messed up, lives often in despair because they have a lack of understanding of God, of Christ, and what He has done. And so we're thinking tonight of how the, the resurrection indeed makes a difference to that. We're thinking tonight of how the resurrection 2,000 years ago makes a difference for us today. And first of all, we're going to see the ignorant concern in verses 1 to 2. Now, there's no doubt Mary Magdalene was very committed to Jesus. This was seen in her going to the tomb even while it was still dark. But commitment itself is not enough if it is accompanied by ignorance. There are many very committed people who are ignorant to the truth. The impact of the stone being rolled away, the impact of the empty tomb was devastating to Mary because she was ignorant. The words she spoke to the disciples when she returned to them would have been absolutely frantic. The end of verse 2, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. She's frantic. She's distraught. But she didn't have to be frantic. She didn't have to be distraught at the empty tomb. But she's frantic and distraught because she is ignorant of God's plan. She's ignorant of Jesus and what he has done. If when Jesus taught about how he would die and rise again on the third day, if that teaching truly had sunk into Mary Magdalene's mind and heart, can you imagine the difference that would have meant when she came and saw the empty tomb? If she really had been believing that Jesus was going to rise, if she had accepted that and embraced that, when she came to the empty tomb, she would have been rejoicing. The tomb is empty. Of course it has to be empty because Jesus said he was going to lie. But because of her ignorance, instead of having joy, what she has is just a sense of despair. So I hope we can see here two things, two things which ignorance causes. First of all, ignorance causes frantic hopelessness when there should be trusting joy. I wonder, is this true about you? I know it's true about me at times that you have this frantic hopelessness at times. 
because the truth of Jesus is not filling your heart as it should be. The truth of his love, the truth of his victory, the truth of his control, if those things filled our hearts, if we weren't ignorant to those things, then indeed we wouldn't have the frantic hopelessness that so often can come our way. But the other thing that ignorance causes is a failure to benefit from the gracious provision that God has given. We talk about the means of grace, worship, Bible teaching, prayer, the Lord's Supper. These are means when taken with faith, God comes and blesses our lives so that we can grow and develop as Christians, grow in joy, peace, patience, becoming more and more like Jesus. But I wonder, are you failing to benefit from the, these means of grace because of ignorance? Ignorance will hinder you in how you're blessed in worship. If your mind is not filled with the truth about Jesus, the truth about His salvation and all that He does for His people, if you're ignorant of Christ and His ways as you come to worship or distracted of it, you'll not have the joy and the, the blessing in worship that you could have or should have. It's the same when we come to pray. If we're ignorant of God, if we're ignorant of what God is like, and I'm not just talking about ignorant in head knowledge, but I'm talking about ignorant in our hearts about what we really believe about God. You can pray, and your praying can make you worse, because there's something really disturbing, and you just focus on that and focus on that as you pray. But if you're filled with the truth about God, you'll be like David in the Psalms. He begins frantic even. He begins with a sense of despair, but as he prays, he focuses on God. He focuses on the truth about God, His love, and His power, and he turns from despair to hope and faith. It's because of his knowledge of God. His prayer time is such a blessing, and the more we know God's Word and believe God's Word, our prayer times will be more and more of a blessing. And also in regards to teaching, when you're taught from God's Word, maybe sometimes you're like the, the people that the writer to the Hebrews was writing to. People who he says should be by this time teachers, but all they can cope with is the, the spiritual milk of God's Word because they haven't grasped the previous teaching. They're being slow to learn. They haven't been as diligent in learning as they should be. And the point of it is, the more you learn, the more you will benefit from teaching. It's interesting today, many people struggle with singing the Psalms. Now, that is partly, partly to do maybe that we're singing psalms with language of maybe a century ago, and where possible, I certainly try and pick psalms with modern 
English words using them. But even when you use modern English words, people can really struggle to benefit from the Psalms. Why? Well, one reason is spiritually. We're so far removed from the spiritual position and knowledge of those who first wrote the Psalms. The problem is these Psalms were written by spiritual giants who had gone into the depths of God. And far too often, we're spiritual pygmies, and we haven't gone to the depths. So what's the result of this? If we're ignorant, do we just give up? No. What did the writer of the Hebrews say when all they seemed to be able to take was the spiritual milk? He would give them the meat. He would give them the solid food because that was the answer to their ignorance. Mary, she should have been rejoicing. It was the Easter Sunday morning. But alas, she was miserable because of her ignorance. The second thing we see, and we focus here on Peter and John, is ignorant belief. Peter and John here show true commitment as they run immediately to the tomb. Uh, I wonder, where were the rest of the disciples? Why did they not go to the tomb? Were they not with Peter and John? Or did they choose to stay in their beds? I don't know. But as Peter and John ran, they too would have had a sense, I'm sure, of this frantic hopelessness which was so real in Mary's life. And this too was because, like Mary, they had failed to grasp what Jesus had previously taught them on many occasions about the need for his death and the resurrection. Their ignorance of the truth about Jesus, the truth of Jesus not really going deep within them, they had heard it, but because it hadn't become deep within them, they were crushed because of this. But because they went to the tomb on the Sabbath morning, something changed. Look there at verse 6. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been in Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in its place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. Now, there was something about the way that these cloths, which previously had been wrapped about around Jesus' body, something about the way that they were lying, which convinced John here of the reality of the resurrection. Now, was it that Jesus, when he was resurrected, unwrapped the cloths which had been around him and just folded them and left them neatly there? Or was it that Jesus, when he was resurrected, which I think is more likely that he just came up through these cloths and they were still lying where they would have been when they were around him there on probably was a ledge? There was something about the way these cloths were lying which convinced John that Jesus' body had not been stolen but that he had been raised 
from the dead. And these men are now beginning to believe that Jesus is risen, despite their previous failure to embrace what Jesus had taught about the resurrection. If you look there in verse 9, it says, For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that He must rise from the dead. They're still ignorant of that. The, the Scripture wasn't penetrating them. Still, it wasn't fully grasping there. But the evidence before them was making up for their failure to grasp this biblical truth. God was being so gracious to these struggling believers that He allowed them to come into the very tomb and see the grave clothes so that now they would be enabled to believe in the resurrection. But the reality is these men, they wouldn't have got this help. They wouldn't have come to believe if they hadn't taken the initiative to go where the evidence was. When we are struggling with doubts, or whether we're struggling to believe in Jesus at all, what do we do in those times of doubt? What do we do in those times of doubt when the devil's attacking us, when we're going through a difficult time, and really our, our faith is getting a bit of a, a battering? We need to go to where the evidence is so that our faith will be strengthened. And the evidence can be looking back over our lives as Christians and previous times in which we have known the blessing of the Lord. The evidence can be the witness and testimony of others around us the changed lives of those around us by the gospel. But of course, the greatest evidence of all is the Word of God and seeing Jesus there. It's when we go there, when we go to where the evidence is, that's when we're strengthened. And when we come and meet with God's people, meet with people who together our lives have been changed by the risen Christ. That's a place of particular healing for those who are doubting. Do you realize that in the Gospels, so many of the miracles that Jesus did, so many of His healing miracles were particularly done on the Sabbath day? And where were quite a number of these miracles done? They were done at the synagogue or done at the temple where people had gone to worship God. And what that just shows us is Jesus' attitude to the Sabbath day. Now, the Pharisees, you realize, were so pernickety about this rule and that rule. But for Jesus, well, he didn't never discounted God's law on the Sabbath and always kept it. The Sabbath was a day of healing. The Sabbath was a day when Jesus came alongside the struggling. He met with them. He changed them. And He helped them. And when we're struggling, sometimes the temptation is, 
I'll skip church or I'll skip the Bible study, I'll skip the prayer meeting because I'm struggling, I'm not in the mood. Let me suggest that when you're struggling, those are the times when you particularly need to be among God's people. Be where Jesus has promised to be especially present, to allow him to minister, to heal, to comfort you. I think when I was in Moy, and quite often just the geography of Moy, the manse was at the bottom of the graveyard. It was quite a s- steep slope up the graveyard into the church. And many a, many a Sunday night, maybe it had been a busy week, and I was so tired and weary just walking up that graveyard. Uh, to be honest, uh, the temptation, you know, I, I could have done without it. But I got to love those evenings because those evenings where I maybe felt so empty or or felt so weak, those were the evenings when God especially blessed and met. Why? Because that's the sort of God He is, so tender, so compassionate to His people. Ignorant belief. They come to have belief, but still they're ignorant of the Word of God. It hasn't penetrated. And then thirdly, we have ignorance challenged here in verses 11 to 15. Mary is at the tomb. It says here she was weeping, and as I said to the boys and girls, the word actually means wailing. She was uncontrollable with her emotions at this point. She has an encounter with two angels, and then with Jesus, who she doesn't recognize. And both the angels and Jesus, they ask the same question. Verse 13, verse 15. Woman, why are you weeping? I don't think these are just questions of concern. Here we have a real challenge and even rebuke. The most wonderful thing in all of history has just happened. Jesus has died, but now he has risen from the dead. The tomb is empty. The victory is secure. But Mary's reaction, she's wailing. She's weeping. She's not living in the light of the victory of the resurrection. Woman, why are you weeping? The answer as to why she was weeping was, again, it's ignorance. She hasn't grasped what Jesus had taught previously. She hasn't taken to heart the glorious plan of God of salvation. She wasn't living in the light of the gospel. That's the reality here. She was living in ignorance without the gospel hope. It just reminds me, you see a picture of Martin Luther and his wife, Katie. I love this example. I know I've used it before. But Martin Luther would have suffered depression. At one time, he was quite low. And his wife, Katie, dressed in black and mourning clothes. And Martin Luther asked him, Katie, who has died? And she replied, God has died. He says, don't be silly, Katie. Of course God has not died. Oh, I thought he had died the way you were behaving 
and the way you were so miserable. Martin wasn't living at that time in the light and in the glory of the gospel. Now, I know we all have bad times, and some people go through depression, and it's not just as easy. But in bad times, we have to look to the hope of the gospel, the hope of God's plan, the hope of the victory of Jesus. Mary, because of her ignorance, was not living in the light of that victory. How often are we like that? Sometimes, if you're a football fan or some other sport, you can be watching a big match, and it's a very close match, it's very nip and tuck, and you're very nervous, you're on tender hooks, and you, you don't know what way it's going to end, and so you're at the edge, and you're worried and concerned. But if your team wins, and you decide the next day to watch the match over again, there's no pressure. There's no concern. Why? Because now you know the outcome. And this is the Christian hope, which Mary had failed to grasp up until now. She should have known the outcome. The outcome is that Jesus wins. Jesus rises from the dead. The victory is secure but she's not living in the light of it because of her ignorance to the truth. It hasn't penetrated. And so we see ignorance challenged, and then finally we see ignorance demolished in verses 16 to 18. And here we see how the Lord wonderfully and tenderly deals with Mary's ignorance. And first of all, we see this personal call in verse 16. There it says, Jesus said to her, Mary. Now, throughout this chapter, when you read the word Mary, it is the Hebrew version of her name, Maria, M-A-R-I-A, Maria. But when Jesus speaks to Mary here, he doesn't use that common word for Mary, Maria. He uses the word Miriam, with an M at the end. Now, why that? What's the significance? Well, probably Miriam was her childhood name. Mary had begun as a young girl, growing up at Magdala. But what Magdala was, it was a resort where Roman officers and soldiers went for relaxation. And you cannot imagine that they went there to, for a Bible study. They were interested in something else. And the fact that Mary is constantly called Mary Magdalene or Magdala Mary. It's a wee bit like somebody be called Soho Susie. You get the idea. Mary was someone who was part of that life of sin. Jesus had cast evil spirits out of her, which just speaks even more of how her life had been consumed by evil and wickedness. 
And what was her name in that life of sin? Maria. Maria Magdalene. But what did Jesus always call her? Not the name of her life of sin. Jesus always called her Miriam, her childhood name, her name of innocence. And it was Jesus saying to her, yes, Mary, you have a past, but I don't see your past. I see you as someone forgiven, someone washed, someone cleansed. And can you imagine that for Mary, every time Jesus uttered that name, Miriam, her childhood name, it just spoke of how she was a redeemed child of God. And that is why when she's here and speaking to the gardener, as she thought, and she hears him calling her, not Mary, not Maria, but calling her that childhood name of innocence, Miriam. She knew immediately who it was, the Jesus of love and grace and forgiveness. And just for that one name, which spoke about all of that, Mary's ignorance, her unbelief, was blown away. It's when Jesus comes and meets with us and gives us a personal call, and as we trust in Him and embrace Him and are assured that we are cleansed children of God in Christ, it just blows away all that ignorance all those doubts, all that unbelief. And so we have this personal call, Miriam. And then we have the eternal focus, just very quickly, verse 17. This is a very interesting verse. I wonder what you make of it. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. What Mary has been told here, she isn't to rely on Jesus' physical presence with her or among his disciples anymore. Because although he's alive and although he's there, it's just for a short time. Mary has to learn to look with the eyes of faith, which she had failed to do in coming to the tomb. The eyes of faith which sees Jesus risen, ascended at the right hand of God in the place of all power and authority. Not to rely on his physical presence, but to rely on faith in his eternal state where he's interceding for his people day by day. And the third thing, is the hope shared in verse 18. As Jesus tells her, she goes, she tells the disciples, he 
is risen. And going and telling the disciples, it's, it isn't just good for them to hear that Jesus is risen. It's good for Mary. Because even as she says those words, Jesus is risen, she would have got more assurance in her heart and in her life. For those of us who teach God's Word, we always know that ultimately we get far more out of our preparation to teach than people will get out of hearing us teach. But there's something about witnessing to Christ, witnessing of what we believe. The Spirit comes and assures us and confirms that truth to us in an even deeper way as we do that. And maybe one of the reasons why some people here tonight are struggling with assurance and where they stand. A bit like what we're thinking about this morning about Joseph and Nicodemus. You're being too quiet. You're not standing up for your faith. You're not speaking about Jesus. It's as you witness for Christ that your faith gets stronger and stronger. How is Mary's ignorance demolished? The personal call, Miriam, childhood name. The eternal focus, the Christ in glory. The hope shared, speaking of this hope to others. Amen.